Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Welcome to School of Theology for this month. We're going to get cracking now. I think there'll be a few more who filter in, but let's use the time we've got, shall we? I'm going to pray, if that's all right. Um, Yeah, Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning. We thank you that you've revealed truth about yourself in the scriptures, Lord. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand and help us put into practice what we learn. So Lord, would you be with us? Would you make our minds sharp to understand? Would you make our hearts tender to apply? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that you've managed to get the notes this time. I know we had a bit of an issue last time, but they've been sent through by email. Now, if you haven't got them, my recommendation would be nudge someone next to you and say, hey, could you forward the email with the notes to me, please? Uh, And then you should get it. And you'll be able to follow along. There'll be bits that relate to what we're talking about. There'll also be bits on here that relate to the group work and the exercises and the things that we do. So having them in front of you would be helpful whether that's on a screen or a printout or whatever you have before you. We're going to do two things today. We're going to look at John's Gospel in the first chunk of time and then we're going to look at the Trinity in the second chunk of time. So I've got you to do the first bit. Nice little question for you. Just turn to someone next to you and share with them whether there are any stories or passages in John's Gospel that are particular favourites of yours. Any favourite stories in John. Two minutes, person next to you.
had a definite favourite. Anyone? Anyone have a particular one that you'd say, this is my highlight from John, or any favourite stories? Or maybe a better question is, was anyone thinking, I like that story, I can't remember if it's in John or in one of the others. Anyone have that sense? Yeah, there's a fair bit of that, isn't there? Um, anything jump out there? What, what stories were you bringing up? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a whole thread of them, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> right. They just weren't hearing what he was saying. Or they were, and then not quite tracking through. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got the I am's. Yeah. Any other bits? Yeah, that's a really cool one. That's the best way to reinstate someone, isn't it? A barbecue on the beach. If I ever needed to be reinstated, cook me a barbecue. <laughs> that's great, yeah. Any more? John 3.16. John 3.16, it's a classic, isn't it? Yeah, for God so loved the world. Um, yeah, if you've read John, what might strike you, particularly if you're reading through the New Testament in a year, it's a bit different to the other Gospels. So if you read Matthew and then read Mark and then read Luke, it's like it's on repeat. You're seeing the same stories over and over again, being told in similar ways. Last month we had Liam here and he had uh, all these pie charts about content in Matthew and Mark and the overlap and Luke and then uh, what might be kind of some source material behind that as well. And he went through it all and showed there was a lot of overlap between those three Gospels that we call the Synoptic Gospels. And then you get to John and it seems like you're in a totally different world. You're reading something written in a different style. You're reading something with so much different content to the other three. What's going on there? Well, let's put the slide up as well. You can follow along here. John leaves out a lot of the stuff that's in the other Gospels. So, for example, parables. Jesus taught in parables, and we think that was Jesus' main way of teaching. It's a very familiar thing. Um, we've all got different parables that would strike us. The Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Parable of the Sower. These are some of the classics of Jesus' teaching. John doesn't mention any of them. He doesn't go there once. He doesn't mention the transfiguration where Jesus was glorified and revealing his heavenly state. He doesn't mention the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, when Jesus talks about his body being broken, his blood being shed. There's no examples of Jesus casting out demons in John's Gospel. We don't hear about his temptations. We don't hear about his baptism. We don't hear about when he called the twelve to lay down their nets, certainly not in the same way we hear it in the others. And we don't hear about the kingdom of God. And that's a point that, again, Liam made this point last month. He was doing a whole thing on the kingdom of God. And he was saying we don't hear that terminology. We don't hear talk about it in those terms in John. Now, he did say he thinks that John is on the kingdom of God train. He just uses other language to describe it. I agree with him. I think if you see eternal life mentioned in John, he's doing something much similar to what the other three are doing with the kingdom of God. Um, but it's interesting that he leaves out so much classic stuff, isn't it? If you were telling the story of Jesus, probably most of the things I've just mentioned would go in there somewhere. John doesn't say any of them. That's an interesting thing. 
John also includes a lot of unique material that's not mentioned in any of the others. So the wedding at Cana where he turns water into wine. None of the other three mention that at all. If John didn't write his gospel, we wouldn't know that that had happened. That conversation with Nicodemus where he says, you must be born again. Where he says, for God so loved the world. It's only in John. The story of the woman at the well. That's only in John. Raising Lazarus from the dead. That's only in John. It's interesting. So what should we do when we see such a big difference between them? First thing I'd say is don't worry. Don't worry about the difference. John was selective in what he wrote. So was Matthew, so was Mark, so was Luke. They had so many stories they could tell, they chose a selection of them for a reason. Here's a verse that I love. This is right at the end of John, John 21, verse 25. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's quite a flex, isn't it? Well, there are so many stories that if we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be space, not just in my book, not just in a library, but in the whole world. He did so much. So I think we can be comfortable with the idea that somebody who's writing an account, choosing from such a wide array of things that Jesus did, might choose a certain selection, and somebody else writing from the same vast source of Jesus' life chooses a different selection. It's also true that John wrote after the synoptic writers, so he wrote a bit later than Matthew, Mark and Luke, and almost certainly he was familiar with what they'd written. So he would have had a copy, at least of Mark and probably of some of the others. He would have known that these books were doing the rounds in the churches. So if he sets about to write his own account, it wouldn't make sense for him to just tell the same stories that they already knew. He'd want to add something from his own memory, from his own experience of Jesus, that they didn't know or that wasn't on the record in the same way. And John's purpose was clear. He says in chapter 20, and this is what the whole book is about, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's really clear, here's what I'm about, I'm choosing a way of telling this story so that you put your faith in Jesus and have eternal life. He's making a case, he's making an argument that Jesus is the Son of God and he's trying to stir us up to trust in him. A couple of preliminary things before we get into the content. Who wrote John? Now that sounds a ludicrous question to ask. There's a clue in the title. It was John who wrote John. Um, it's actually a more interesting question than it first sounds because in the gospel itself, it doesn't use the word John referring to the author. It uses a phrase called the disciple who Jesus loved. And that's the way the author refers to themselves in John's gospel. And there's a few examples of this. So chapter 13, verse 23, chapter 19, verse verses 26 to 27, chapter 20, verses 2 to 9, and chapter 21, verses 20 to 24. We keep coming back to this idea of the disciple who Jesus loved. I don't think he's trying to say Jesus loved me and he didn't love the others. Uh, that's not what he's getting at, but it's just a way of trying to draw the attention away from himself and onto Jesus. 
But all the early tradition says that this disciple who Jesus loved is John. And the evidence for that is pretty strong. John was one of the um, kind of key in a group of disciples. And yet it's bizarre that he's just not named throughout the whole book. So Peter and Thomas and Andrew and a lot of the others get named. John, he's just kind of not named at all. So who's the disciple who's missing when the disciple who Jesus loves shows up in his place? It's John. Also, the writing style and the writing content we find in John is so uh, similar to the style and content we find in the other writing that is John's writing. So things like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John and Revelation. It comes through as this is the same person who's written it. And then when was it written? We're not exactly sure. It would be after Matthew, Mark and Luke before 1 John, 2 John, 3 John and Revelation. And the debate is somewhere between about 65 AD and 95 AD. Honestly, I don't think it matters. Anywhere in that range, I think we can be pretty comfortable with that. So what's going on in John? I've got a few of the emphases for you that you can follow through. John loves sevens. Seven is a big thing that he loves to riff off. Seven's like a biblical number of completion. The world was created in seven days in Genesis. And John loves doing things in sevens. So as you're reading through it, you'll see little collections of seven things that work together as part of his case. You've got seven signs. So these are miraculous things that Jesus did. And these signs would show something of who Jesus was. You can imagine he's in a courtroom. He's making his case. I want you to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me start presenting the evidence. Do you see this thing that he did? What can you conclude from that? And so he brings in seven pieces of evidence in the signs. He also brings in seven witnesses, so seven people or things that will give their testimony to who Jesus is. We've heard about the I am statements, there are seven of those as well. These are things from Jesus' own lips where he puts expression on his own identity. He, He gives us an insight into who he is. All of those things over this first block we're going to delve into a bit and look at. We also see a lot in John about the unique relationship between Jesus as the Son with God the Father. And we get a lot deeper into that than we do in any of the other Gospels. There's a lot of profound reflection on what it means for him to be the Son and how he relates to his Father. We also have a lot more material on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in John than we do in the other Gospels. So that's where we're going to be in the second block. We're going to look at the Trinity, but the very best way to understand the Trinity isn't trying to do mental abstract gymnastics, is to look at John's Gospel and see how the Father, the Son and the Spirit relate to one another. And so we're going to do a bit of that later. Also, there's a big chunk in John on what he calls the hour of Jesus' glorification. And glorification in John is about the cross. So the cross is the moment of Jesus' glory. And he's got more material on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life than any of the other Gospels do. He spends a bigger percentage of his time there. Structurally, we've got uh, two big blocks in John. The first half of it, so chapter 1 to the end of chapter 12, we call the book of Jesus' signs. This is building the case, showing the things that he's done, establishing his identity. 
And then the second half of it, we'd say from the beginning of chapter 11 through to the end, is the book of Jesus' glory. This is when things start heading towards the cross. We see his death, we see his resurrection. And there's a little kind of two-chapter block that uh, is the bridge between them, chapters 11 and 12, where Jesus does the last of the signs, that's raising Lazarus from the dead, and then that sign precipitates things and starts accelerating events towards the cross, as we will see. So that's like the bridge between the two sections. Also in your notes, I'm not going to run through this, but I've put a list of different titles of Jesus that we see throughout John and some of the verses that you can see them. So you can look those up in your own time as you want to do so. But we're going to get into John now. And the first bit is the prologue. That's verses 1 to 18. And this bit really is kind of John poetically setting out everything he's going to do. He sets a lot of his major themes into motion here. So, hey, if you've got a Bible, would, would you open it now, please, to John chapter 1? And I wonder if someone would be happy to read out the first 18 verses for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him. Thank you very much. What we're going to do now is do a bit of work on this passage. So I've got two different exercises around it. I'm going to split the room in half. Half of you will have a go at one. Half of you will have a go at the other. Then we'll bring it back in. We'll discuss what you found and we can all learn together. So this half of the room, if you go onto your notes to the page that looks a little bit like this one. And what I'd like you to do is, just around your tables, also read through Genesis chapter 1. And then see if you can find or spot any links between these two passages. So, things in John that remind you of Genesis 1. Also, things in John 1 that build on and go beyond what it says in Genesis 1. 
And then if you get time, think about why did John choose to start his gospel in this way with these links and echoes of Genesis? That makes sense? Happy with that? Great. This half of the room, you should have a, a page on your notes that looks a little bit like this. And what I'd like you to do is look up some of the themes that we see in this prologue to John's Gospel that are then picked up and reflected by John elsewhere. And what I've done is I've given you the reference to where elsewhere in John you see one of these themes picked up. So look up the verse and then think about, well, where do I see that same theme echoed through in the prologue in 1, 1 to 18? Jot down what the theme is and jot down where you see that in this opening passage of John. So I'll give you 10 to 15 minutes, see how we get on with it, uh, to work on this. All right, I'm going to draw this back in. Hopefully that was a good amount of time to, to dig in and make a bit of progress on those things. I'd love to hear some thoughts on what you discovered. So we'll start with the first of them, which was looking at Genesis, looking at how John is picking up on things that are going on in Genesis 1. So people on this side of the room, just share some of the things that you noticed were in common between John 1 and Genesis 1. In the beginning, they both start with the same words, don't they? That's got to be deliberate. He can't have just accidentally used the same formula. He's doing something there. Yeah. What else? Creation came about because of the, the word of God, or you might be yes. that the thought of God. Yeah. Creation came about. Absolutely. Jesus was that. Yes. Yes. So it's drawing into that and God said, it's explicitly the word, but now Jesus is called the word, it's personified and we're we're fleshing it out uh, in in a lot of ways. Yeah? Cool. Anything else? The light was spelling the darkness. Yeah. Yeah, so there was darkness and the light comes into it. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So creation is uh, the Father through the Son, and uh, we pick up in Genesis as well. It's by the Spirit, but that's getting into the the stuff we're going to later. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any more? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And I think the, in the image thing as well, it's God showing something of himself, revealing something of himself through creating people in his image. And then there's a much fuller revelation of God through giving his son, the one and only, who makes the father known. Yeah. Yeah, anything we see that goes beyond Genesis. So someone might have read Genesis and they've got an, an accurate picture. They've got some kind of understanding. What does John do that blows that out of the water and expands on it? We've touched on it a little bit. Jesus came as a man who bore God's image. Absolutely. So we've heard about God creating, but now that God himself would step into this world he's created, that's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that it's through Jesus that it was created as well. So he's taking these Genesis ideas, but he's going way beyond them to show us the glory of the gospel. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's echoed there as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, why do we think John does this? Why do you think this is the way he goes in his opening salvo? Yeah. Um, so by creating a reflection between the opening of Genesis and the opening of John, it helps to highlight, I think it helps to highlight how Jesus is what the Pentateuch was pointing to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All of that was to get our attention on him. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the one who it all points to. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, showing. I, I'm not just making claims about a prophet. I'm not just making claims about a good man. I want you to see this is the creator God who I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's kind of also showing that, like, Jesus came to be the light of the world. Yeah. Um, kind of what I was, when I was reading Genesis, it's kind of verse 3 is like God created life. Yes. And then verse 16, the Son of Moon created. Yeah. And then in the beginning of John, you say the true life. Right. Yes. Yeah, people read Genesis and they sometimes say, well, how could there be light if the sun and the moon and the stars aren't there yet? But there's a truer light. There's a more um, kind of absolute light. And actually, there's an even more absolute light than the Genesis 1-3 light because there's the uncreated, eternal light of Christ. So we're seeing that expanded. Yeah. I think as well, just straightforwardly, I think John's saying, I want you to see this gospel as a new creation. I want you to see this as, um, yeah, I'm, I'm using creation language to show this is the inauguration of the new creation in Christ. Yeah. Let's have a look at the other one as well and see what some of the themes that we picked up that then John comes back to elsewhere. So if we run through them one by one... Um, Let's start at the top. So John 17, verse 5. What did we pick up from this verse that then we see in the prologue? Would it help if I read the verses out as well? Probably for the benefit of the people who haven't looked at them. So John 17, verse 5. Um, part of the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. We're seeing the pre-existence of the Son. We're seeing that he was with the Father in the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, 1.14. Mm-hmm. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Yes. The glory of the one only. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a glory link there as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Next, we've got John five, verse twenty-six. Um, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. What do we pick up for this one? One four. One four. In Him was life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sorry? Uh, light in the darkness, uh, yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah, 1, 4 and 5 is bringing light to the darkness. Which links into the next one as well, 3.19, which says... And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What do we see here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so 10 and 11... And then similar theme in verse 5, I guess you could tie in a bit as well. So the darkness at least is trying to overcome the light. Uh, there's a rejection there. Yeah. Um, 12.46. What do we get for this one? Um, it says, I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we've had a few in a row there that are all light connected. Um, yeah. Then 444 says, uh, For Jesus himself testified a prophet has no honour in his own hometown. Verse 11. Yeah, Christ was not received by his own, was he? Um, John 3, verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 13, yeah. So in verse 13, those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah. John 12, 41 Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Um, yeah, 15. I think both of those verses, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there is a glory link there for sure. Um, there's a testifying link as well. Yeah. Um, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Sorry, I missed that. I was thinking verse 12. Verse 12? Um, yes, so um, to all who received him and believe in. There's a link there on believing. Um, I think there's another link perhaps on 14 and 18 on the idea of the one and only Son. Uh, it could be made as well. Yeah. Um, and two more. So 14, verse 6. It says, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Anyone pick up anything on this one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think 12 because of the receiving through. Yeah. Yeah, receiving through. I think there's, um, there's a truth connection there as well. I am the truth and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's 17. Yeah. Um, and then the last one was 646, which says... Not that anyone has seen the Father, except who it, he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
18, yeah. Uh, no one, um, 18 says, yeah, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So you see all these things that he's set up in this first passage, he's then riffing back on and alluding to and drawing through. Um, the next page of your notes should have probably four of the big themes that come through in the prologue and how they're tracked through the rest of John's gospel and uh, I've given you a whole bunch of verse references where you can see this happening uh, and just a little summary of what's going on with each one uh, so you can see how this happens. What I want us to do now though is go on to the seven signs in John. So So what's a sign? Well, think of a signpost. When we see a sign, it's not something that is meant to be our main focus. It's something that as we look at it, it will point us to something else that we're meant to see, that we're meant to go to. It's something used to direct our attention in a direction. The signs in John's Gospel are actions performed by Jesus that point beyond themselves and reveal something about Jesus' person and work. Um, and quite often you'll see something happen and John will say outright, yeah, this was one of the signs. So let me give you an example of that. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. You see that kind of language used in numbers of these. Um, now, there, there are seven signs. Depending on who you read, you might get a slightly different list of what the seven are. There are six that are just kind of there on everyone's list. The seventh one, there's a little bit of debate. Um, some people think the resurrection of Jesus himself was one of the signs. Some people think the cleansing of the temple belongs on the list. I'm pretty confident with the list I've given you that these are the seven that John intended to portray. But just be aware that you might come across a slightly different list. What I'm going to do, I'm going to get you just a slightly shorter group thing now, maybe five or six minutes on it. I'm going to give each table just one of the signs. Just have a look at what's going on in that passage. Have a think about what does this show us about Jesus. And then tell us, if you can, any Old Testament passages it reminds you of. And it might be that nothing comes to mind. It might be that loads come to mind. It's fine either way. But just have a think if any of them do. So how are we going to do this? Ten tables, seven signs. So we're going to have a bit of duplication. So let's say two tables here at the front. Could you do the first sign, uh, which is water into wine? The next two tables, could you do the healing of the official son? Um, and then the table at the back and the front table, but let's say the, the two tables at the back, that might be a better way to just spatially do it. Could you do the paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida? Then working our way forward, so fourth table there, um, could you guys do feeding the multitude? Middle table on this side, walking on water. Second from the front, healing the blind man. And the front table, raising Lazarus. Everyone got which one you're doing? So about five or six minutes, read your passage. How does this show something of who Jesus is and what he came to do? And then are there any Old Testament passages that it reminds you of?
guessing that you've kind of done a whole Old Testament synthesis or anything like that on these. <coughs> Let's draw it in. Let's just chat about what's going on in each of these and then we'll take our break. So running through them one by one, Jesus turning water into wine. What did this story, so this is the front two tables we're looking at here, show us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Yeah, power over nature. Absolutely. The, the power of nature. Yes. The blood was, the wine symbolised blood, mm-hmm. but also because it was a marriage, it was a signal of God's covenant between man and woman, mm-hmm. like his covenant with Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And it replaced the old covenant. Mm. Yes. Which they did use to celebrate as wine. Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah. Jesus turned that ordinary covenant into something new. Yeah. So it's pointing to the new covenant, isn't it? And uh, and the promises of that. Did you pick up anything in the Old Testament that this reminded you of for either table? And then in Exodus they used to raise the cup of um kiddish, of course. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. yeah. they did, yeah. Um, also in Isaiah you referred to the messianic uh, banquet that was promised great fine wine would be there Isaiah 25 that one um, and wine was to gladden the heart yes absolutely down to us it was absolutely yeah yeah another link is in Exodus when Moses turned water into blood as one of the plagues on Egypt now Jesus is turning water into wine uh, that's quite an upgrade isn't it um, <laughs> I'm also reminded a bit of both Elijah and Elisha. Uh, they both had an incident where they would multiply food at a time of need. So you've got um, in Elijah's case, um, he asks the, the woman to make with her last bit of oil and flour uh, a cake for him. And then throughout this whole time where there's no rain on the land, it doesn't run out. There's a provision of food. And then Elisha has something similar where someone who's in debt pours out the oil in as many containers as they can find from all the neighbours, doesn't run out to they're all full. Uh, so there's something similar there as well. Um, let's have the next two tables. The healing of the official son. What does this show us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he brings life by his word. Yeah, he speaks and it happens. Yeah. Any Old Testament links that you picked up? Well, we just went back to Genesis and thought the Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was reminded also, again, Elijah and Elisha, right after the incidents that I've just referred to, both of them then had a story where someone's son was taken unwell, and both of them were asked to intervene and to do something. Now, in those cases, they had to physically go there, and so the kid died, and they were able to bring them back to life. Jesus, because his word has such power, he could speak it, and he didn't die. He was healed in in the moment. Um, I think there's a link there. Yeah. What about the back two tables who were looking at the paralytic at the pool? What did this tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? It shows his compassion. 
Hmm, absolutely. Yeah, it shows his compassion for someone in need. It shows his ability, like we've heard before, to bring healing, to bring wholeness. Um, yeah. Any Old Testament links? Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, made the link. Yeah, what happens in Isaiah 61? Um, yeah, and he's living that out, isn't he? He's being that suffering servant who was promised by Isaiah, who's doing those things. Yeah, very good. Yeah, a any other links? Elijah and Elisha again. Elijah and Elisha again. In what way? Raising the dead. Raising the dead, um, yeah. A particular story from Elisha that came to my mind was Naaman, a man who's told to go into the water to find healing. Now, you've got the man who can't get into the water, and by the word of Jesus, he finds healing. It's Elisha plus plus plus. He's exceeding what we saw there, absolutely. Yeah, um, table there, uh, who was looking at feeding the multitude? Uh, what did we learn about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it's the physical provision, but also it goes beyond that, and it's about spiritual nourishment as well. What did you pick up in the Old Testament? Well, a couple of ones. You mentioned the Elijah one, mm -hmm. where it, um, it, um, what was it? Elijah was the one who Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and a big part of the conversation after this goes on to the theme of manna from heaven and how that came from Moses. There's actually in the Elisha one, to go back to, to that, there's another incident with Elisha that I don't think we hear about often at all. Um, but I'll just read it to show you the link. 2 Kings 4, 43 and 44, that says, um, oh, well, starting in... 42, a man came from Baal Shalishar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men so they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. It's basically the same story, but Jesus scales it up. More people, less food, but it's the same thing, right? I'm sorry? Chapter 4, verses 43 and 44. Yeah. Yeah, so Joseph um, providing the food at a time of famine. Um, Boaz... I guess when Ruth's in famine, and yeah, absolutely. So God providing food for, for those who need it, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, the table who were looking at Jesus walking on water, what did we learn about who he is and what he came to do from that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes, he's totally sovereign over the, the natural world, isn't he? Yeah. Any Old Testament links you spotted? <laughs> Yeah. Right. So in Elisha, there's the axe head that's sunk, and uh, miraculously it's raised to the surface. It's like a miracle where the normal buoyancy of water is altered somehow by the power of God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any others? Part of the Red Sea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about you guys who are looking at healing the blind man? We just um, talked about, you know, that God is, is, has the power. Yeah. Um, and, and about healing um, the spiritual blindness as well. Yeah, the yes. spiritual blindness. Yeah. You know, versus physical blindness. Yes. Um, he's talked a lot about. Definitely. Um, and, and Jesus is the light of the world. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the thing with the signs, isn't it? We're seeing something quite physical happening that then we're meant to see there's a spiritual version of this as well and read into that. Any Old Testament things you picked up? Well, I immediately thought of Naaman. Uh-huh. No, it's not a blind. And we weren't yeah. listening to anybody. No, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but it's, it's, uh, it's a healing. Yes. Naaman was blind. Yeah. Also, the fact that in both of these stories, yeah. they had to do something, they had to go and cleanse mm. themselves. Yes. But they had to be sort of proactive yeah. in their healing. Yeah, definitely. They had to do so, they were just yeah. giving, you know. So, yes. Um, yeah. And if we want to stay on the Elisha theme, what about when the servant comes to him, when there's an enemy army around them? And Elisha says, open your eyes and see. And he sees the spiritual reality of God's armies overwhelming them. Yeah. We also have well, Susie found out 61 as well. Yeah, we're yeah. listening to anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's absolutely there though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, and with that, another of the, the servants, Isaiah 42, um, goes explicitly into opening the eyes of the blind as well. Isaiah 35 too. Um, lastly, raising of Lazarus. What did we pick up on here about who Jesus is and what he came to do? So again, power over death. Yeah. And again, you can link the spiritual yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Uh, and that he points to the further... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. And anything Old Testament? And um, so the Elisha and Elisha story we've already mentioned about this. Yeah. Back. And yeah. some of the game copy. <laughs> 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 some of the Isaiah 61. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually another Elisha story. So Elisha. The last thing we hear about Elisha is when he's dead and he's in the grave and then someone throws a dead body into his grave, it touches his corpse and comes back to life and comes out of the grave. You know, when I was 
kind of putting this together, I was looking at loads of commentaries. Nobody picked up on this Elisha thing. Every single one of these seven signs has a parallel in Elisha that is amplified and taken to a new extent in Jesus. That's got to be deliberate, right? That John's telling the story that you've got Elijah and then Elisha did the same but more. And now you've got Jesus being shown to do the same, but even more so. He's the uh, better Elijah. He's the new Elisha, the new fulfilment of all the Old Testament prophetic tradition. These signs, though, we see in John, they can be a bit of a snare as well as a helpful thing. The signs have a limitation, which is this. It's spiritually dangerous to get too obsessed with the signs themselves and not go where they're leading to look to the person of Christ. And we get that warning come through, and I've noted down some of the verses for you. And believing and putting faith in him without seeing is commended and we've got Thomas as an example of that after the resurrection he has to see he has to put his hands on the wounds and Jesus says blessed are those who believe even though they've not seen so the signs have their purpose let's not get too focused on the signs because they're going to take us somewhere to see who Jesus is and we're going to look at some of the other evidence for who Jesus is in John's gospel after our break so let's take um, it's 13 past. Should we take 12 minutes? We'll come back at 25 past and then we'll go from there. Great, let's move on to the next thing that we see happening in John then. So, so far we've done the seven signs, which, thinking about the courtroom analogy, these are the exhibits, the pieces of evidence that he's putting forward. Next we're going to see that John calls seven witnesses that bear testimony to who Jesus is. And we find these witnesses in two particular passages. And we're going to do this as an activity together. Uh, I'm going to read the two passages. But just as I'm reading, see if you can spot the seven witnesses that are mentioned. And as you do, on the slide, on the page you've got that looks like this, maybe just note down what the witness is that you pick out and then we will reflect on it. So the first of the passages is found in John 5. I'm going to read verse 30 to 41. Uh, so John 5, 30 to 41. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. We'll stop there. I'll go to the second of the passages. This is John 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Anyone pick out seven from those two passages? Yeah? Yeah, okay. We've got John the Baptist. Yeah, that was in verse 33 of chapter 5. That was the second one that I got. Um, So we've got God himself, as in God the Father. Yeah, that's verse 37. Scriptures, yeah, verse 39. Jesus himself, verse 31. Any others? The Holy Spirit, that was chapter 15, verse 26. Uh, His works, 536. And then the last one. Yeah, you will bear witness about me. So we've got our set of seven. We see these witnesses woven throughout John. So Jesus himself, well, we'll come on to the I am statements and we'll hear his own witness testimony. John the Baptist, big chunks of chapters one and three are all about the words and works of John the Baptist and how he bore witness to Jesus. The works that Jesus did, well, we've just been talking about the seven signs and how they point to who he is. God the Father, how does God the Father bear witness in John? Well, we hear the audible voice of the Father. Now, in the, in the synoptics, we get that happening at the baptism and at the transfiguration, where you hear, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's actually a bit different in John, and we find in chapter 12, verse 27, um, sorry, verse 28, actually, um, but starting at 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so we hear the voice of the Father audibly in John as well. The scriptures, there are loads of examples of how the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. We've just picked up on a lot of the Elijah-Elisha links uh, through, but there are lots of direct quotations as well. Um, How the Holy Spirit bears witness, there are big chunks of chapters 14, 15 and 16, where we see the Holy Spirit and how he bears witness to Jesus. And then there are plenty of examples as well of people who've encountered Jesus, who then go and bear witness, like the disciples are being asked to do. So people like Nathaniel, people like the woman at the well, people like the blind man who've been healed, they're able to be witnesses like we are to be witnesses. So... The other thing that he presents is the seven statements that Jesus makes. And each of these statements starts with the phrase, I am. And you may well be familiar with this idea, but using the words I am was a loaded thing to do. It wasn't just the way we might use the term I am. If I said, I am a father. That would be a thing that I would say about myself. But that I am 
was a reference to the divine name. So when Moses met with God in the burning bush and asked God his name, he said Yahweh. But what it would actually be in the language was, I am who I am. And God was often referred to as I am. And so in making these statements using the divine name, Jesus is referencing that. And he's trying to say not just that I am a good shepherd. He, he is saying he's a good shepherd, but by loading I am, it's like he said, I am God, the good shepherd. That's the connotation we're meant to take. I put a quote from Mark Strauss on your notes. Um, Jesus' use of the absolute I am, ego I me, seems to be an allusion to the burning bush episode in Exodus 3, where Yahweh tells Moses that his divine name, I am who I am, meaning the self-existent one and a play on the divine name, Yahweh. So that's what Jesus is doing. There's a moment he does this really explicitly that I want to read to you, which is John 8, verses 52 to 59. Context here is he's debating with some of the Pharisees and religious leaders. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's interesting that, that he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, normally, grammatically, what you expect him to say, if he's trying to claim that he pre-existed Abraham, would be before Abraham was, I was. That's the tense you'd expect him to use, right? But in saying before Abraham was, I am, he's not just saying, I'm very old. He's saying, I'm eternal. I'm God. I pre-existed in the way that the Father is pre-existed. He's claiming the name of God. Now, sometimes you get people, I don't know if you've ever had like Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door and try and debate about it. And they'll say things like, did Jesus really claim he was God? Well, you show them this, and they, they wriggle out of it. Here's why I think he was definitely saying he was God. Look at what the people did. They picked up stones to throw at him. They understood exactly what he was saying, and the response shows it. So as we read these I am statements, this is the lens that we're going to use. He's claiming that he is God. Now, there are seven of these statements. Um, I'll just run through what they are. First one's in John 6, 35, where he claims to be the bread of life. This was in the context of uh, a teaching discourse after feeding the 5,000. Um, a bunch of people had started following him because they wanted food. They, they were amazed that he could provide fast food cheap, but they didn't want to believe in him. 
And so there's a whole debate about how Moses had provided the bread from heaven. Well, are you greater than Moses? And he said, well, Moses might have been able to provide God, but provide bread from God, but I am the bread of God. I am what will nourish you. It's me that you need to satisfy the deepest hunger of your soul. Second one is, he says this twice, I am the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 5. The first context is he's speaking to the Pharisees about how they're walking in darkness because they were claiming to be children of Abraham but living like they were children of the devil. And he was saying, well, I am the light of the world. Look to me to show you how to live. The second one was as part of the healing of the blind man, that he is the one who gives spiritual sight. He can open our eyes to spiritual reality. You know, I find it really interesting that these I am statements, they're very kind of earthy and tangible things. Like if we did a theology textbook, we'd put abstract words in trying to show what God is like most of the time. Jesus uses these images that just flesh it out in a very different way. Uh, we've got two I am statements in chapter 10. So he says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So he's teaching here about sheep and shepherds. The people are like the sheep, the leaders are the shepherds. And he's talking about those leaders who've come before, but who are abusing their power, who are um, manipulating their position for their own gain. And he says they're like thieves, they're like mercenaries. They're not godly shepherds. And he's playing off the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 is a really important link here uh, as is Psalm 23 he's saying that he is the one through who we can come to be saved and find pasture and he's the true shepherd who cares for his sheep even to the extent of laying down his own life chapter 11 verse 25 he says I am the resurrection and the life so this is the raising of Lazarus. We talked about this as one of the signs. Now Jesus actually arrived late. He was called for in plenty of time so he'd get there before Lazarus died. And he just stalled and delayed going there. And then Lazarus' sisters are a bit cut up about it. Uh, Jesus, what are you doing? Why didn't you come earlier? You could have saved him. And he's having a conversation with Martha. And he said, well, don't you believe that he will rise again? Now, the way they believed it in those days is, yes, there would be a resurrection at the end of time. So she's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, end of time, he'll be back. But I'm still pretty down about the fact my brother's died now. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. He raised him up. And it's in Jesus that the resurrection breaks into history. In the middle of human history, not at the end. He's the one who brings eternal life. John 14, he says, this is verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's having a conversation with Thomas. It's the night before he's died. And he said, look, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'll prepare a place for you. And you know the way to get there. And Thomas says, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus is saying, I am the way. There's only one way to the Father, and that's to come through me, to know me, and you'll find eternal life in me. And everything we've seen in John, all these witnesses, all these signs, they back up that claim. And then finally, he says in John 15, and he repeats this in verse 1 and verse 5, I am the true vine. So this is the night before he died. He's teaching about how we're fruitful. And his point is that we need to be connected to him. We need to abide in him. We won't bear fruit outside of him. 
The vine is an Old Testament image of the people of God. You find it in Isaiah 5. But he said, forget that idea of Israel as the true vine. It's me. I'm the true vine. I'm the one you need to be connected to. So there are the seven I am statements. I've also put in the bottom corner there seven Easter eggs, as I call them. Um, John scatters through his gospel seven more I ams that are not as in your face, that are not as explicit as the, the big seven. But there are seven more times that the words I am are used of Jesus. And the last one, he basically repeats the same thing three times. It's like, amplify it, amplify it, amplify it. Again, I think John's just trying to put another layer in there of this I am identity of Jesus. Moving to the last section of John, the book of glory, John spends more time on the last week of Jesus' life than any of the other Gospels. 42% of John versus 29% of Matthew, 37% of Mark, 21% of Luke are spent in that last week. Now, the Lazarus incident was the thing that kicked everything off because Lazarus was a huge problem for Jesus' opponents because he was there alive when everyone knew that he died and he was not that far away from Jerusalem. And so what was happening is people in Jerusalem were hearing about Jesus, hearing a rumour that he'd raised Lazarus from the dead and then going to see Lazarus. So Lazarus became a little bit of a celebrity and he was getting everyone's attention. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like, we can't have this. There's like walking evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So they stepped up their plot to kill Jesus. They also wanted to kill Lazarus as well, uh, just to take the evidence away. And that's what precipitated the move from Jesus doing these signs on tour, doing what he did, to coming into Jerusalem to be killed. The, the principle of it is shown in chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. Now, that hour has come. Up to now, he's kept saying, my hour has not yet come. Now is not the time. He had this sense of when the time would be. Now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honour him. And so he said, I have to lay down my life. I have to be like the seed that dies so that eternal life and fruitfulness can come. Then what John does is he gives us in chapters 13 to 17 a much bigger section on the last night that Jesus had with his disciples than we see anywhere else. You get the feeling it's quite intimate. Like John was there. He laid his head on Jesus' chest as they were eating. And he was remembering what was talked about on that night. We've got the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. No one else tells that story, but it's one that John brings out. We've got much more extensive teaching on Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. 
We've got two of the I am's that we've just talked about. Stuff on how then, when Jesus has gone to the Father, how the believers relate to the world. And then we've got chapter 17, this great high priestly prayer where he prays for them and he prays for all who would believe through their testimony. But then in chapters 18 and 19, we come to what we call the passion narrative, the uh, description of Jesus' death. And we get a lot of crossover, as you'd expect, with the other Gospels here. We hear about his betrayal and arrest. We hear about his trial. We get more on the trial in John than we do anywhere else. Peter's denial and the crucifixion. But scattered through it, we've got some pretty unique personal details. So when uh, John and Jesus' mother are there by the cross, John's recalling, yeah, Jesus said, right, John, this is your mother. Take care of her. Mary, treat him as your son. These real personal moments. We hear Jesus say, I thirst. We hear him say, it is finished. And then uh, in the last two chapters, we hear about his resurrection. And we hear some pretty personal stories. Uh, again, stories that we don't often hear elsewhere. We hear about Peter and John racing to the tomb. I love that he included that. It's like, yeah, we were running to the tomb, me and Peter. I was faster, by the way. Uh, given that he said, if I told you everything, like it wouldn't, um, the, the books would, it wouldn't even fit in the whole world. There's this much to tell. I'm gonna choose the most important bit. By the way, I'm faster than Peter. Uh, it seems an interesting editorial choice but um, we hear about Mary Magdalene meeting with Jesus and I think in Mary Magdalene we've got a picture of how we respond to the risen Jesus we see Thomas I alluded to this story earlier and Thomas is an encouragement to those of us who haven't seen with our own eyes the risen Jesus but can believe and right at the start we heard about Peter's restoration and this is a promise of redemption for all who've gone astray so that's John. That's what he does in his gospel. Um, yeah, he's a brilliant gospel. I would commend if, uh, if you've been working your way through it in recent days and weeks, um, keep going. If you haven't, it's a great book. Like for, for your devotional reader, I think this is one of the um, kind of real cherished books of the Bible to dig into. There's so much that's encouraging in that. Right. And that's the end of that. Shall we do... Yeah, well, we'll do. If there are any questions, we'll we'll do a couple of them before we move on to the Trinity. Anyone got anything on John? That it doesn't have to be questions, actually. If it's thoughts, observations, things that haven't come up, you want to talk about or share or anything. Yes, John. Man. the answer is I think it would make a huge difference so uh, is there enough in the other gospels that we can be saved absolutely absolutely but there's so much of our understanding of who Christ is what he did that we'd miss out and we'd be a lot poorer if John wasn't in the gospel it seems yeah. to me also it's a bridge between the synoptic gospels and the Acts mm. which is sort of it has its place in that it does yeah yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. That actually is a really good point of what would the Bible be if certain books weren't there? Mm. Yet we could probably quite happily do without the book of Job. But we need the book of Job. <laughs> 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 do you know what I mean? It's like the, mm. even the book of Esther, which doesn't mention God, mm -hmm. but we know what she did yes. because she was such a time. Yes. That's a really, it's a really good question. It is, yeah. Without yeah. Certain gifts, that we, need them all. we do, yeah. Uh, the Holy Spirit has inspired the Bible the way He has for a reason, because it's all God's Word. It all testifies to Christ. It's all there to equip and train and teach us. So yeah, yeah. Good point. <laughs>